Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. The St. Louis Browns moved to Baltimore for the 1954 season after having played in St. Louis since 1902. During their years in St. Louis, the Browns, well, they didn't meet with much success, but they did have a few good or great players over the years, including George Sisler, Rogers Hornsby for a few years, and even Hall of Famer Heine Manush for a couple of seasons. But there was another guy who spent almost his entire career with the Browns, and he is long forgotten and overlooked. A guy who broke Babe Ruth's streak of consecutive seasons winning the American League home run title. A guy who was as natural a hitter the game has ever seen. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back on his remarkable career. We're talking Ken Williams. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could be here. And today, a real forgotten superstar of the 1920s, Ken Williams. And joining us today will be Dave Heller, the author of the book, Ken Williams, A Slugger in Ruth's Shadow. It's a terrific biography recapping the career of Ken Williams, the plight of the St. Louis Browns, and a whole lot more. Williams is truly one of baseball's most overlooked superstars. It took him a while to break through, but once he did, it was apparent to everyone that the guy could hit. I mean, really hit. And once he listened to the advice of teammates and made a slight adjustment in his approach, he added mammoth power as well. In fact, Babe Ruth won four straight home run titles in six out of seven years. The only year he didn't win was 1922, and that's when Williams interrupted his streak with 39 taters. For his career, Williams hit 196 home runs to go along with a career batting average of 319. And there's no telling how many more home runs he would have hit if ballparks had the shorter fences they do today, and if balls that left the park fair and later curved foul were counted as home runs instead of foul balls. Now, Williams, who originally came up with the Reds, was not a very good defensive ball player, at least in the beginning. And when the Reds cut him, he went back to the minors and worked hard to get better in the outfield. When he returned to the majors and the St. Louis Browns in 1919, he was a different player and became a fixture in their lineup for the better part of the next nine years. And we will get into all of that with Dave in just a bit. 
We'll also talk about the devastating injuries that Ken sustained and his fictitious age that also contributed to his ultimate demise, although he could still hit. And we'll also talk about the irony of the designated hitter, a suggestion made by the National League, that's right, the National League, that was ultimately nixed by the American League and later, as we all know, adopted by the American League and nixed by the National League. Had there been a DH, Williams just might have been able to play for several more years. Now, before we get into all of that, first, a little housekeeping. You can find out more about Sports Forgotten Heroes by visiting our webpage, sportsfh.com. There we also have contact information, so you can drop us a line and send in your suggestions or make comments about your favorite episodes. Follow us on Twitter at SportsFHeroes, Instagram, Sports Forgotten Heroes, or look for our page on Facebook. And, as always, please give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So, Ken Williams. He broke in with the Cincinnati Reds in 1915 and stuck with the Reds through the early part of the 1916 season before getting sent down to the minors in a numbers game. Williams worked hard on his game and signed with the St. Louis Browns in 1918, although he played in just two games because of the war and he didn't play a full season until 1920. His first big season came in 1921 when he led the Browns with 24 home runs, 117 RBI, and he hit 347. His batting average wouldn't dip below 300 until 1926 when he hit 280. Ken was one of the most streakiest hitters, and when he got hot, look out, you just couldn't get him out. And joining us now to talk more about Ken Williams is the author of the book, Ken Williams, A Slugger in Ruth's Shadow, Dave Heller. David, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could join us. Well, thanks for having me. I'm uh, always happy to talk about Ken Williams and uh, pleasure to be on here with you. Oh, thanks so much. So before we get into the story of Ken Williams... I have to mention this. You are at least the third guest I've had on Sports Forgotten Heroes who has attended, in some sort of fashion, American University. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, it's, you know. And who my, knew we were at yeah, no guns? Turn them yeah. <laughs> and my son graduated from American back in December. So Awesome. I've got to ask, what is it about American University and writing about sports forgotten heroes? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. Uh, your son and I are a few years apart, I'm guessing. So uh, <laughs> uh, he's extending the timeline a bit. But uh, I don't know. There were a lot of sports guys when I was there. And maybe there were a lot of sports guys when your son was there. I, I don't know. DC is a great town. It's a great school. So uh, I don't know. <laughs> Just found it interesting. What a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. In fact, Neil Rosendahl, who joined us on episode 39 for a discussion on Duke Slater, he also attended American University, as did Tom Simon, who was just on recently talking about 
Ray Collins. So it's pretty cool. Sounds like we need to get together in a little uh, group chat between uh, the three of us here and see what's going on. Absolutely. So, Ken Williams, how did you discover him and why write a book about him? Sure. Uh, Well, I'll try to make it as simple as I can. But uh, basically, I grew up a fan of the Baltimore Orioles. I'm not from that area at all, but just I I became a fan for I can't tell you why. I just did. Uh, Probably they were good back, back in the day when I was growing up. And then as I got older, I really became interested in uh, the history of baseball. Mm-hmm. And so the, the St. Louis Browns became the Baltimore Orioles. So I kind of became like a de facto Browns fan, if you could be a fan, you know, for a team to learn or exist. And then, uh, you know, quick, you know, discovered Ken Williams. And basically the only thing I knew about him was he was the first guy to hit 30, uh, 30 home runs and 30 steals in a season. Mm-hmm. And that was always a great that was always a great trivia question, like in middle school, high school, cafeteria, you know, when the guys are throwing out sports trivia. But that's all I knew about him was basically, that's it, 30-30 guy. So, you know, that's where it stood for years and years and years. And then, you know, a few years back, I think myself, well, why can't I, you know, what, 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 who, who was this guy besides a 30-30 player? And then I was later found out, you know, Linda being home runs during the Ruth era. You know, maybe I can find out more about him. I, it's, a, you know, a passion project, I guess, to use a cliche. So I just kind of did the research, and uh, I got a lot lucky here and there and found out as much as I could, and, and there you go, wrote it up. Yeah, quite quite the book. And, you know, one of the things that intrigued me about Ken is this. You open your book about a banquet in which past baseball stars from St. Louis, that's the Browns and the Cardinals, were honored. And Ken was invited to that banquet. And he was, I guess, fearful that he had been forgotten and that no one remembered him. But that was pretty far from the truth, wasn't it? Right. Yeah, you've got to remember. I know back. This is back in the you know fifties, so you know no internet. Uh, he lived in Oregon, well away from Major League Baseball. Uh, you know, Major League Baseball wasn't even in California until the late fifties, and you know at that time. Uh, so he, who wouldn't remember Ken? He hadn't played in thirty-five years, so mm-hmm. that was big. And he didn't really travel outside of Oregon too often. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like he was making appearances or doing TV interviews or. Newspaper interviews, so uh, so he was really uh, afraid that he'd go back there, not maybe be embarrassed, but you know he was once a big wig, and all of a sudden you know, the Cardinals are now the Browns are gone, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and the Cardinals were the big thing, you know, Stan Usual and those guys. But uh, as you mentioned, you know, he gets to the banquet, and and uh, it turns out people did remember him, and and kind of I think they appreciated it, you knowing when you don't hear from someone for so long, and now there he is in front of you again, you remember the the history and the things he did. And like you, so this is your chance to appreciate that person. And then that's what happened to him. You know, the thing about you go to a game and they introduce old timers, you know, and they get the yeah. hand. It's, yeah. it's, you know, it was a very, very similar, uh, very similar thing. Well, you mentioned Oregon. He came from the booming metropolis of Grants <laughs> Pass back right. in the late 1800s and early 1900s. What was living in Grants Pass like? And how did baseball figure into all of this? Yeah, Grants Pass, uh, you know, I guess Cowtown would be a good good, uh, good <laughs> term. You know, they, it, it took a while to have paved roads, so the streets were often uh, full of mud and, you know, things that cows and horses leave behind. So you walked on the, the sidewalks a little more, uh, you know, on the wooden boards to stay off the streets because even when your shoes get too dirty. So it was definitely that kind of town, uh, you know, they didn't get telephones until uh, the early 20th century. Um, 
you know, they uh, had they stopped selling alcohol in the early 20th century before prohibition even. Uh, so there wasn't much else to do in those kind of small towns. And baseball was, you know, that was a national pastime. And baseball was sprouting up everywhere and little club teams here and there mm-hmm. uh, all throughout the country, even though, like I said, there was no major league baseball west of St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Uh, still, uh, still, baseball is very popular. And, uh, you know, it's in Oregon, little, all these little towns created teams. And, uh, you know, Ken somehow found out he had the proficiency. You know, he was very he was tall for his for the time and very athletic and uh, found out that he, he could play and, uh, and quickly became one of the better players in Oregon. Tell us a little bit about his upbringing, his family, and the fact that he dropped out of school after the eighth grade. You know, why did he drop out? What, you know, again, um, what was it like for, for his family in Grants Pass? Yeah, so his dad was kind of a, I don't know, he, he did a lot of stuff. He, he bounced around. I kind of think of him like a Jackie Gleason, you're looking for that big, you know, honeymooners, you're looking for that big score. <laughs> not that he was a big guy like that, but he, he bounced around like he, he tried to do gold mining once, and he, he was a teacher, and he, you know, ran a hotel. He started, he was always moving, you know, doing different jobs, trying different things. Uh, and, you know, education back then, it wasn't as important as it would become in later, you know, in American history. Uh, you know, if you were weren't really inclined to go to school, go to, go to work and help the family out instead. So that's kind of how it became. I don't think he was uh, necessarily uh, enthralled in being a student rugby playing ball and then going to going to class. So uh, eighth grade is, is as far as he got, and uh, yeah, he, he uh, <laughs> found work instead around town. I helped the family out, and then. Uh, Played ball and realized he could make money doing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, where did his ability on the diamond come from, and how was he discovered? I mean, like you said, it's not like Grant's Pass was on the map, especially as a hotbed for baseball talent. Right. No. Well, uh, as it turns out, there was a, a player on a team that Ken would eventually play for uh, in Grant's Pass named Bud Pernall, who got discovered and. Um, went to Pacific Coast League and eventually the Tigers, pitched for the Tigers in the major leagues. And so that kind of gave a glimpse to, hey, there is something beyond this little town here. You know, you, baseball could take you elsewhere. Uh, and so Ken would play for Grants Pass, the Grants Pass teams, but then he got uh, uh, on a team in California, uh, quote-unquote amateur team or semi-pro team. And basically mm-hmm. it was, you, you'd work, they'd, they'd funnel money for under the table and you'd play for the team while supposedly working and using air quotes and working for like a local factory or something like that, you know, basically he'd maybe be a night detective and just sit outside and do nothing, you know, while he's getting paid to play baseball during the <laughs> week. So, uh, you know, he did that and made a name for himself, but, uh, uh to get this, you know, getting discovered, it, sometimes it takes a lot of, you know, a luck, uh, it's just, you know, something fortuitous happens. And in this case, uh, there was a, a league in Western Canada, basically the lowest minor league of, of them all. Like if you, Think of how low you can go. It was, a, it was the bottom rung. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, think of Western Canada, small towns in Canada, uh, and they hired a guy named Billy Hewlin to be a manager in a uh, team in, a, in Regina, uh, Saskatchewan, uh, or Alberta. I'm sorry, my Canadian province is horrible. I apologize <laughs> to your Canadian listeners. Uh, but uh, anyways, they this, this team in Regina. Uh, they had they had been around. They went to Funk. They came back. They hired this guy Billy Hewlin, and Billy Hewlin uh, had some pro experience, visually experience, and he, as it turns out, was living in Oregon. So where did he go look for players? Where he, where he knew, where he lived. 
because he started looking for players in Oregon, and then most many of the players he signed were in fact from or from Oregon. So hmm. somewhere along the line, either he was tipped off or saw Ken play, and that's how Ken became uh, you know became a professional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about his time in in the Canadian League, he was known as Bill Williams instead of Ken. <laughs> Why? Right. Yeah. Well, uh, he was known as Dinky Williams in Grants Pass because, uh, you know, one of those opposite nicknames. He was not Dinky at all. He was a bigger guy. Why would you call Bill? I think it's just because his last name was Williams, right? They took Will Williams and made it Bill. Bill Williams. It's easier, <laughs> it easier to print out than anything else. They didn't really take time to learn these guys' first names or they did what they want to do to save space. So Kenneth is kind of a longer first name. So why not think of Bill? You know, guys in papers back then did kind of do what they wanted to do. Uh, they they shortened last names and longer, you know, guys with long names and, and things like that. So, uh, yeah, he had, he, had, he had a lot of different names going through his professional career. Dinky, Bill, Ken, <laughs> Kenneth, Ken, Kenny. But, uh, you know, he had them all. <laughs> Interesting. Now, he also had quite the temperament, didn't he? And he was not afraid to take on the establishment. He was regarded as a moaner. He earned the nickname Crab because of his attitude. And he never shied away from a fight. Tell us a little bit about his temperament and how it came to be. And I guess, did this carry over to his time in the majors? Uh, To answer the last part uh, first, yes. (laughs) <laughs> he definitely was a, he definitely was, I consider, you know, I've, always, I've often thought about this, is how to compare him. And if you remember back in the 80s, Greg Jeffries mm-hmm. uh, was, was always known kind of as an intense guy. And people would kind of not like him maybe because he'd, he'd argue calls a lot and be upset. I, I feel that's the way Ken was. He, he did not like when a call did not go his way. And he would make it known to the umpire. And back then there was only one or two uh, in a game. And he'd make it known pretty quickly that he'd not agree with the call. And and he got the reputation of being, as you mentioned, a crab. Uh, he did get into some fights, and you know, baseball was different back then. Uh, there were, especially in the you know 1900s, 1910s, uh, there was what they call you know rowdyism. There was a lot of fights, and especially in the minor leagues. And you know, again, one umpire, maybe a game or two, it's hard to break up a fight when these mm-hmm. guys are going at it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it was kind of it was it was his both his his uh, persona, but also kind of the attitude of the game at the time. It kind of allowed for that. Even though not everyone liked it, maybe he went over the top a little bit, uh, but he was certainly not alone as the only guy who was complaining about stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The one thing he could do was hit. And, I mean, yeah. he could really hit. But the one thing he had a little bit of difficulty with was defense. He was a... At least early on, he wasn't the greatest of defensive ball players. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I would say uh, in his career, he really was a good outfielder, and then he became a major leaguer. His big problem was ground balls. He was not a good uh, he was not a good fielder of ground balls, and from the research I found, like uh, he, he played infield a lot in the minor leagues, third base. He came up with a shortstop, like in semi-pro ball. He put out third base uh, in, in in the low minors when he first started in the Western Canada League, and and he was not uh, proficient with that. Uh, like I said, the ground ball was good. Even in the outfield, those low liners would bounce. They, you know, he, he just wouldn't feel them very well. I don't know why that was. He just was not a good ground mm-hmm. getting ground balls. Mm-hmm. He had a very strong arm. He had a very strong arm, and uh, that would also account for errors because these guys to be back then too. Cutoffs uh, were not 
uh, a common thing. Uh, they were, the Browns eventually would do it in the mid twenties, early twenties, but cutoffs were out of thing back then. They would just try to throw guys out and players took risks in the base pass. They took risks throwing. So he made a lot of errors, you know, throwing the ball as well, but he really, he was, he was very fast and had great range mm-hmm. and really had a great arm and a great arm. But, uh, you know, the actual, Getting to the ball sometime was a problem, <laughs> and mm-hmm. especially playing the infield. And he never really played the infield in the majors. That was mainly in the, in the minor leagues. We had a lot of problems uh, with the infield. But in the major leagues, uh, again, most of his errors were either on throws or just these, these ground balls. That for whatever reason, he had, he had difficulty picking up. Ken played in competitive amateur baseball and ultimately minor league ball. And as you had mentioned before, he, he played in Canada. It was a great place for him because he really learned how to lose. And <laughs> he, this this would serve him well throughout his career, obviously playing with the St. Louis Browns, one of baseball's all-time losers. But before he went to the Browns, Major League Baseball scouts were taking notice of him in the minors, particularly the Cincinnati Reds. How did he end up with the Reds? Yeah, so uh, it was very interesting. So he, he was in Canada, as you mentioned, Western Canada League, and actually his second year there, he got cut by the team he was on. They had, they had a new manager, and they got rid of him. Uh, I still, uh, I mean, research, they, they say why they did it. I have a few reasons in the book, but it's, it was very perplexing, at least. So he went to Edmonton in the same league, uh, and this is 1914. Mm-hmm. So with World War One coming on, uh, Canada was involved in that, so that league shut down, and uh, Edmonton sold him to Spokane, which is uh, a higher league up, and he really started to flourish in Spokane. And that was that was actually a very good team in Spokane he was playing for, and so they got a lot of notice. A lot of notice, you know, they were in first place. He was putting up great stats. He was stealing bases. He was you know hitting home runs. He had a high batting average, and uh, that that league, uh, the Northwest League, got a lot of major league scouts. And it turns out uh, someone from Spokane actually uh, made a letter to the owner of the Cincinnati Reds and said, hey, we got a guy here in Spokane who maybe you should take a look at, Ken Williams. Uh, he's, you know, doing all the things I just said, you know, hitting the ball and mm-hmm. great player. So this is, a, this is how scouting uh, sometimes existed back in 1915. He sent a letter to the team owner and they'd take a look at you. So uh, Cincinnati was in need of a left-handed hitting outfielder. They were kind of an independent race, sort of. <laughs> it was a very tight race. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And and they, they actually wanted a guy named Jack Smith, who was once Kenneth's teammate in the Canadian League, uh, and was playing for a, a different team in, in the Northwest League. And uh, but they wanted the Jack Smith now. They wanted they wanted because they were in this pennant kind of race. They needed a player, but the team that had uh, Jack Smith said, "No, we're not going to sell him until the season's over." So there were a few teams after Ken, uh, the Giants, if I remember correctly, the Tigers, um, and then the Reds came in, and basically the Reds offered more money. And that's how it gets done. The upper money is done. And the funny part is, uh, uh, Edmonton was sold him to Williams, uh, Spokane, made a deal that if they sold, if Spokane sold uh, Ken to a major league team, they'd get some of the money. So Edmonton got half the money, uh, 500 bucks of uh, the first thousand that was paid off, uh, went to Edmonton, even though Edmonton was no longer even existing because the league was defunct in 1915 because of the war. So that was mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Uh, but so the Reds paid a thousand bucks up front uh, for for Ken, and then if I remember correctly, I believe they had another five hundred thousand they paid for the season. And then if you were on the roster uh, after a certain date in nineteen sixteen, they paid another thousand or five hundred bucks, mm-hmm. whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So 
but they he, he fit the criteria they needed. They wanted they had, they had a kind of older outfield outfield that they wanted that wasn't doing well, uh, and they want a left handed hitter. He checked those boxes, and like I said, they were kind of in a pennant race. It was a very they were like maybe in fifth place, five games out, it was tight. Uh, they were just trying sort to make of like moves. today. So today, so today, exactly. Uh, so they're trying to uh, kind of make some moves to get up in the race. It didn't work out eventually, as it turns out. But he was not the only. They made a couple moves um, to try to move up in the rankings, and you know, for various reasons, it didn't work out for either the Reds or for Ken. Mm-hmm. But he showed he could when he got to Cincinnati. He certainly showed he could hit. But I guess it was his fielding that again was an issue. And as you said. Every time this guy did something good in the field, he followed that up with a bad play. And every time he did something positive at the plate, he followed that up with things like being too aggressive on the base paths. So talk a little bit about the abbreviated time he did play with the Reds. Yeah. So if you, look, if you go like on baseball reference and look at the stats, let's see, he hit 242, which people say, oh, 242, that's horrible. But really, the league average is around 250. So it wasn't like he was that bad. He was actually one of the better hitters in the Reds during his time there. One of the problems in Cincinnati was the manager was Buck Herzog, um, and he was a, a protege of John McGraw, famous Giants manager. Mm-hmm. And he really he tried to be just like John McGraw, which was the problem because he was trying to be John McGraw uh, with no experience, where John McGraw had been doing it for a while. Right, and there's so the only players, and there's only one John McGraw. The players didn't really like Buck Herzog too much, and Herzog liked his style of hitting. Herzog was one of those you know, old-style, took, took him off on the bat, slap hitters. And that was not Ken. So uh, Herzog wanted Ken to be like Herzog. He wanted him to be more of a slap hitter and not use a heavy bat. Ken liked using a really heavy bat, and he forced Ken to use a lighter bat. So that was one reason why Ken's batting average really wasn't what it was. He showed very little power in Cincinnati. And he had power throughout the minor leagues. He was a power hitter mm-hmm. uh, his entire career, not just not just with St. Louis later on. He was always a, a home run hitter. Um, so his batting took a little bit of a down, downturn. Still, and when it went to 1916, he was thought to be one of the guys who was going to be uh, starting in the outfield. He got that chance, but he made some really bad errors in Pittsburgh one day. Uh, he was playing with the called the Sun Field, the Sun Side. He botched a couple of fly balls. Herzog pulled him from the game, put in Greasy Neal, who was later an NFL Hall of Famer, uh, put him in the outfield, and he made a good catch and had a hit later in the game. And, and by May 10th that year, they had to cut the roster down. And guess what? The Reds owed more money if Ken was on the roster on May 10th. So guess who got sent back to the minor league? Right. Ken Williams. Yeah, Ken, Ken Williams. So, uh, it was a combination of things, yes. His fielding was not uh, up to par, probably, as I mentioned. And uh, Herzog really uh, Herzog forced him to really hurt his hitting style. I think did that help his cause either. So back to the minors he went in 1916. Right, and he ultimately wound up in Portland with the Beavers in the PCL. And this is where his game really took off, even defensively. First, how did he turn his defense around? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, uh, I think he, he, I think he knew what happened <laughs> in, in, in Cincinnati. You know, was not good, and he wanted to get back to the major leagues. And then I think he realized he needed to be an all-around player, not just not just hitting the ball. Um, and he really, I think he worked at worked at his game. And, and they left him in the outfield too. He was no longer an infielder, which he kind of he even pitched them in a lower minor. Mm-hmm, and they, mm-hmm. that, that that stuff stopped. He was now an outfielder. I think it helps when you know where you're where you are. 
you know, it, it solidifies a little bit and gives him more confidence. So I think that helped a little bit. And I think, you know, he was hitting the ball. He got back to where he was, back to heavy bat, back to pounding the ball and driving the ball in the park. You know, he had three home runs in a game in, in Portland um, and got noticed for that. And, and, and the leading league in home runs and steals and, and hitting three, whatever it's hitting, 340. Uh, so I think that all that stuff, that confidence really spilled over to every part of your game. You can get back to where, where he was. And I think that really helped. And so he, he plays a couple of years down there, and two teams really took notice, the Pirates and the St. Louis Browns. And the Browns got him. How did this go down? The Browns got him um, late in 1917. He was having a great season in 1917. And it was kind of the same thing uh, the last time. Sometimes teams want a player right then and there. The Browns didn't care. Like, he can, he can finish the season out. So that helped. But one of the things was, Back then, there wasn't uh, like minor league affiliations uh, like they have nowadays. You know, like here I'm um, in Wisconsin, the Brewers have you know, AAA in San Antonio, AA in Biloxi, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, back then, it was just it was a free for all. You know, no one was affiliated with anybody. But certain teams kind of hooked up with other teams. So Portland had a deal with Cleveland. They would just supply players to Cleveland for a couple of years, and then out of nowhere, Portland decided. Oh, we're going to give a player to Milwaukee, the American Association, instead of Cleveland, and that took Cleveland off. That that broke off relations to no team. Mm-hmm. Then it became anyone you know anyone could get Portland's players at that point. And then at some point, Portland needed a, a first baseman, and and uh, the Browns no longer needed uh, one to get George Sisler. So Portland bought uh, Babe Borton, a first baseman from the Browns, and owed money for him. And Guess what? Hadn't paid it off yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> in return, the Browns came asking for Ken Williams. Said, hey, what about it? That fifteen hundred bucks we owe you? You take Ken instead, and that and that's how that worked out. Now, the manager of the team was not thrilled, and the manager was the nephew of the owner. The owner, he was like, "I could get more money for Ken than we got. It's ridiculous." He didn't understand that Portland was a little in need of money. They were losing money, and they had to had to make this deal to kind of save save their money and in the long run. So Ken was kind of a, a victim or a help of a trans, you know, mm-hmm. a previous trans, previous transaction. He was the, he was the, the, the parson postal, I guess he is. He was the guy that had to fill the, fill the bill. So St. Louis was, was uh, fortunate. They, they trade Bay Borden for Ken Williams any day of the week. So St. Louis was fortunate, but I don't know how fortunate Ken Williams was because <laughs> he could have maybe gone to the Pirates. Um, so he ends up with the Browns. And this was around the same time that the Federal League was around. And many players from from all the leagues, from the Federal League, from the National League, from the American League, they were all fighting for bigger contracts. Now, Williams, who hadn't played in the majors since 1916 with the Reds, he actually had the chutzpah to hold out for money, for more money, or he would stay back with Portland. How big a risk was that? Did he even care? <laughs> Ken had chutzpah, that's for sure. <laughs> back, back in 1911... He, I found this out that uh, he uh, was signed on. He was playing in semi-pro. He was going to play in the minors. And uh, he got signed on to Portland. Portland, they needed a player. And supposedly, he was bought the Red Sox. And they needed to play a week just to fill all the roster spot. And said, okay, thanks. We'll, we'll 
stay. You know, we'll, we'll get back here later. You'll come into spring training with this, our Sacramento team. So they're playing. Sacramento was playing in Portland. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sacramento said, "Oh well, we'll just we'll, we'll, we'll bring in the spring training next year. Just just lay, lay low." And it turned out that they only paid him for like a week. And Ken thought he should be paid for the whole season. <laughs> so he basically uh, he didn't sue, but he went to what's called the National Commission and asked and said, which was the commissioner of the day, it was the three guys made up a board and said, "Hey, I need to get paid for the whole season." And they said, "No, he could use the blackballed." I don't know why he did that for like basically a month's pay, I guess. It was pretty good money for him. Uh, but he usually could have been blackballed and didn't happen. So uh, he has precedence of, of kind of not worrying about uh, uh, future consequences, I guess we should say. It was a little odd that way. Of course, you know, you, you've mentioned it a couple of times. This was right around the time as well with the World War going on. And several major leaguers were called into service. And even though Williams made the Browns in 1918, it really wouldn't be until 1920 that he'd make an impact on the team. But before we get there, let's talk about his age. He, (laughs) He hit his real age and was actually older than what was listed on the roster. And I'm not talking by like a year or two. I mean, he was older than right. what he was listed at on the roster. Talk about that. Yeah, uh, so I, I couldn't really find out when or why he figured this out, but this is not uh, something that was um, just Ken Williams, and, and this is something that's gone on into the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Players, lie, players lie about their age. Uh, and, you know, he was, uh, you know, when he got uh, called to Cincinnati, he claimed to be 21, and he was actually 25. Uh, that's a big difference. But once you claim to be a certain age, guess what? That's what sticks with you. And that's, that's so people always thought he was much younger than, than he really was. Uh, so when he was at the Browns, he was 28. And he really didn't, uh, in 1918. So his first year, really, his first full season, he was 30 years old in 1920. That was the first season he actually played uh, an entire season. And, and you know, I guess you can't blame the guy, would, you know, as a major league uh, owner or general manager or business manager back then, they called him. You know, would you want a guy who's 28 or would you want the guy who's 24? Right, you know, right. It's, it's not, you know, it's pretty easy to figure out who you, who you go for. And it, it turns out, you know, it never hampered him. He played well in his late 30s, which most players did not do. Uh, it's pretty impressive how, how late he did play. But, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it helped his career. Maybe it saved his career. I don't know. Uh, but but that, that that age thing really helped him out. And he never He never got caught. Mm-hmm. They did, and no one, no one ever spilled the beans about it. He, he, in, in the sporting news obituary, they had an age wrong. Uh, so hmm. it's just, you know, fifty years later, they they, they still didn't know it's correct date. Um, <laughs> but he, he could easily got caught because he had to fill out his war. You know, he had to fill out his. Uh, you know, he got drafted. He had to fill it out, but no one ever figured it out. So yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. So when he had a, you know, he he did serve time in the army. Um, but he never made it overseas. He was playing baseball, uh, it, it, you know. And but the army knew his real age, but nothing was never revealed. Correct, correct. So I think, if I remember correctly, the draft uh, incorporated the age, the age group that he was in, regardless whether it was his real age or his fake age. So there was no red flag. Like, well, why is he getting drafted? He's you know twenty eight years old, but it didn't matter because the draft incorporated such a large age range that he, he, he came right in. But yeah, the Army's not going to come out and, you know, they're not going to 
post age. Mm-hmm. They just took him and they took him and they let him play baseball for four months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then until he got shipped out and basically I was told he got shipped out. He was heading over to Europe and he was halfway there or wherever he was and they said, Oh, war is over and they turned around and he came home. And then he went to St. Louis and played for the Browns, and what a career. So when he first gets to St. Louis, you know, he battled some injuries his first uh, for his first few years there, and then finally, in 1921, Ken Williams arrived. Talk about that 1921 season and how he finally turned the corner. Yeah, so in 19, you mentioned 1919, uh, let's go back, he got hit by a pitch by Walter Johnson, who everyone I'm sure has heard of, ending his season prematurely. Mm-hmm. Uh, hit, hit 300, you know, had a good slugging percentage. Uh, he's always a good slugger. Next year, 1920, also hit over 300, had a really good slugging percentage, hit 10 home runs, which for the day was a lot. 1921, uh, you know, I guess Ken had a lot of power. In the minors and in the semi-pro ball, he was known as Home Run Williams. I mean, people think maybe that home runs never existed until Babe Ruth came around. Not you know, not true. Guys hit home runs, they just didn't try to hit home runs, so it was a little different. Mm-hmm. But Ken but Ken had a lot of power in the minor leagues and he always had a lot of home runs, um, relatively speaking to, to the era. And and he he hit the all fields. He was a you know, he's an all field hitter, left, center, right, didn't matter. And <clears throat> as a child, Sportsman's Park where they played in St. Louis had a shorter right field uh porch, you know, three fifteen I'm gonna say down the line. Mm-hmm. And his teammates were, and Babe Ruth was coming into his own as well uh, in 1920, 1921. And he was off to a really hot, Babe Ruth was off to a really hot start in 21, and a lot of home runs early in the season. And he, of course, would naturally be a topic of conversation in, in dugouts and clubhouses. And one day during, uh, you know, the players were kind of sitting around, you know, chewing the fat, talking baseball, as they always did. And his teammates were say, said to him, Ken, if you change your stance and start hitting the right field instead of all field, you, you, have, you have the power to hit home runs like Ruth. And, and you know, Ken never really thought of himself that way. He thought himself a good hitter, never thought of himself a great hitter. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, if my teammates feel this way, maybe I, I can do it. And he changed his stance. And lo and behold, he had 24 home runs in 1921. Uh, and as, as he would later say, normally people would think 24 home runs was a lot. Of course, Ruth hit like 59 that year. So <laughs> <laughs> they kind of got pushed to the back burner, but he was still second in the league in home runs, uh, you know, uh, that that season, and you know, the next year really really took off. But twenty one is when twenty one is when it really started. He hit three forty seven a year as well. So it wasn't like he was just a home run hitter. He he could hit. He could hit all fields. They said he was fast. But uh, that changing his style, he changed his style of hitting in nineteen twenty one to accommodate where he was playing. And this is at a time, and uh, this would affect almost every ball player, particularly a guy like Williams or Babe Ruth. I mean, who knows how many more home runs each of them would have had had the rule been different. So back then, if you hit the ball over the fence and it then curved, you know, into foul territory and it was still in view, it was a foul ball. So who knows how many others? Yeah. Yeah, he definitely lost a few. I I mean, going through the papers and stuff, you'd you'd read about it. Oh, it was a home run and curved foul. Like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, he's another home run he lost. You know, he could have had over forty and twenty-two for sure, but he definitely lost. He definitely lost a few over the years because of that rule. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the other things I noticed in reading your book, which everyone is a terrific book, Ken Williams, a slugger in Ruth's shadow. 
What a terrific book. I encourage everyone out there to get a copy of this. It's really, really good, very in-depth, and you will certainly learn a lot about baseball back then, how the game was played, some of the other rules, and of course, you're going to go way in-depth on the type of ball player that Ken Williams was. And one of the things that struck me was he was a real streaky hitter. I mean, it was incredible. He'd have a 10-game hitting streak, then he wouldn't hit. Then he'd have a 15-game hitting streak. Then he'd be on base, you know, 30 games in a row. I mean, how streaky was this guy? And you talked about this earlier. He used a really heavy bat. Yeah, he definitely, you know, it's funny. I was kind of going back looking through my book just to make sure I was up to date and everything. It's been a few years since I wrote it, so I want to make sure I had it fresh in my head. And and the other things I remember writing was about Ken would, you know, he'd slump for two weeks or whatever, and then all of a sudden he'd pick it up at like 400 over two weeks. It's pretty incredible how he used this. He, yeah, he, uh, yeah. He was a very I mean, streaky hitter. David, you, you talk about this. It wasn't like he'd go on a 10-game or a 15- or a 20-game hitting streak, you know, one for four, two for five. I mean, we're talking three for four, four for four, right. two for four, three for four, one for four, two for four, three for five. <laughs> I mean, it was just incredible the amount of hits he would string together. How did this <laughs> – I mean, what was this about? How did he do this? You know, there's an old saying, uh, you know, there are certain players, they say, uh, can, fall, can fall to bed and hit or whatever the thing goes. That, that was him. He could fall to bed and get up and grab a bat. He goes spring training every year and just start knocking the ball. He, he'd just get there and start hitting. And mm-hmm. I think that's what he was. Just, he, was just, he was a hitter, you know. And every hitter is going to go through slumps. That's just the way it is. But he was such a good hitter that he'd go through great streaks. And that's why he's got a 319 career batting average. Because mm-hmm. he, he, he could hit. And like I said before, he could hit to all fields. Um, when he wanted to, uh, you know, he changed. They changed his style to go to more to right field later on. But, but he could hit. He could hit everywhere. And he had and he had power. And those fields were big too back then. You know, yes, there were some short porches in in different places. But you go like some of these places in deep center field. You go four or five, you know, five hundred feet. Mm-hmm. You know, you can knock him over someone's head and start start running like crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he could do that. He could hit it. He could hit it in front. He could hit it over. He could hit the gap. He's a he's just a great hitter. And you say he did use a you know. Theory back then was heavier bat added more power. You know nowadays they you know, go the light bat for the quick the quick swing, uh, but you know even Ruth you know used the heavy bat and, and Ken did too. Uh, at one point they you know forty four ounces but the general range you know forty to forty four ounces maybe uh, or the general range which sounds crazy nowadays and guys mm-hmm. using thirty two ounce bats. But yeah, uh, that was his his theory was heavy heavy bat heavy hit. But uh, he had to be really strong to swing that right. heavy bat too. I mean, he was not—he was not a small guy, especially for back then. Right, he was six feet tall, which doesn't sound big, but the average height back then was five eight, and he was reportedly six one, six two. Sometimes I think he once was at six three. I think it's because he looked tall. He was kind of lithe. You know, he wasn't—he wasn't big and burly like a Ruth. He was more of a you know just put together, and that's what he was his whole life. He's had great metabolism, where he just was. Always in shape and always, you know, never overweight. I wish I had his metabolism, but uh, <laughs> he was, uh, you know, always in great shape. You know, he, that, that's just the way he was. He'd, he'd work, you know, in the off season doing whatever to stay in shape, and and uh, it, it paid off for him. And like you said, he obviously was very muscular and probably had really strong wrists. 
So then along comes 1922, and what an incredible season. He hit a league-leading 39 home runs. He knocked in 155. He hit 332, and he stole set, uh, he stole 37 bases. In fact, he was a big-time threat on the bases. For his career, he stole 154. So 1922. He's the first 30-30 player. He's the first player to have more home runs. He hit 37 than he did strikeouts with 31. He hit home runs in six straight games. Was the first AL player to homer two times in the same inning. And he was the first AL player to hit three home runs in one game. I mean, what a year. Tell us about the 1922 season and the comparisons he drew to Babe Ruth, even though he said he was nothing like the Babe. Right. Well, it, it, you know, sometimes things click. And 2022, everything everything clicked uh, for Ken. Um, you know, the, that, that St. Louis team is a really good hitting team. You know, George Sisler's on that team. They batted uh, whatever, 420 in front of him, which is one reason why he drove in so many runs. Uh, but the home runs also helped the cause. They were very aggressive. Uh, Lee Fold took over as manager in 1921, I want to say, off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was he was an aggressive, you know, on the base pass kind of manager. He encouraged those guys to run. And you look at Ken Steele, they really pick up uh, in that year. You know, he never stole more than uh, 20 bases other than that one year. Well, I'm going to put an asterisk there because really he had more than 37 steals that year. But uh, official stats were spotty. Mm-hmm. Uh, at best, mm-hmm. and he actually played more than 155 RBI. We discovered more RBI that we're not accounted for because they didn't really know how to. It was RBI was kind of a new stat; and they were still figuring it out. And a lot of times, you know, they just didn't know who got credit for whatever. Mm-hmm. And steal sometimes he'd be on the back end of a double steal, and they wouldn't give him credit for the back end of double steal. Um, so he played. You may have had 40 stolen bases that year, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, wow! But that year, yeah. But that year um, was. Uh, you know, he didn't start hot off the bat, but it slowly picked up. And Ruth was out for a suspension. So mm-hmm. kind of he got hot, and then all eyes were on him because he was putting up these Ruthian numbers, home run numbers, and Ruth wasn't playing. So all, all eyes turned to the guy who was hitting the home run, and that, and that was Ken. And he never really, he never, uh, the pressure built up because he suddenly became a public figure. And Ruth was calling him out you know, publicly as well. You know, when Ruth speaks, people listened and people wrote about it. Uh, and he never wilted, and he just kept hitting home runs. And uh, uh, you know, I said, yeah, you named all the stuff he did. You know, he was the first guy to hit six uh, home runs six games in a row. Uh, and he had a three home run game, and, and Ruth always wanted to be the first guy with three home runs in one game, and he didn't do it. Ken Williams, mm-hmm. um, you know, and he mentioned the two in one inning. Uh, you know, 155 RBI, 153 games, so he had more ribbies in games played, which uh, very few players have done. He did it twice in his mm-hmm. career. Mm-hmm. Um, mentioned, you know, he, he didn't, you know, he was compared to Ruth often that year because of, you know, these are the two guys who were hitting home runs. And some papers try to compare them all to the same kind of player, but they really weren't. I mean, Ruth struck out. Ruth really went for home runs, and he would strike out a lot. You know, as you mentioned, Ken did not strike out a lot. Mm-hmm. 31 times, you know. He didn't strike out a player. lot for his career. For his career, you're right. And he's the only player, he's the only 30 30 player ever to have more home runs and steals than strikeouts in a season. Oh, ever. And that's, you know, now, the 30 30 deal is a big deal to us now, but no one knew about it back then. No mm-hmm. one cared. <laughs> yeah, it, was a, sexy, you know? it was almost like 50 years before another player hit 30 homers and, and stole 30 bases in the same year. 
Right. Uh, there was only one 2020 player previously, and that happened in 1911. So he was the second 2020 player. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a master. He was the first guy to do the American League as well. Uh, he was the first 33 player, and Willie Mays did it in 50. Um, 55 around that territory, mm-hmm. maybe 58, somewhere in there. So it was 30, over 30 years later um, that anyone ever did 30, 30, 30 again. I said no one's ever done 30, 30 and had 31 strikeouts. That's mm. just crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but he, you know, he, he had 332. Uh, you know, he was, just, he was, uh, you know, he, he was, he was clutch, you know, you know, 155 RBI. I know RBI is a statistic that a lot of fat heads, you know, try to dismiss and whatever. You still got to knock him in. Uh, you know, yeah, you got opportunities for there. You still got to, you got, mm-hmm. you know, you got, you got to produce. And he, he produced. And that was the best Browns team in history, probably of, you know, the Browns didn't go to the World Series in 1944. Uh, this Browns team was such a good team and talent wise was the best. Just they kept short and they didn't know the pitching and Silver got hurt late in the year. But uh, Ken was a big reason and he got absolutely no MVP votes as the probably the most ironic part of it all, uh, just the way the situation was. Back yeah, then. You, had, you had written about that. That's crazy to think that he didn't get any MVP votes, and I guess it was George Sisser that was taking the votes. Right, so back then, uh, you could only vote for one player per team. So Sisser would get the votes, and Ken, Ken did not. So you got no votes because Sisler, who was named MVP, or mm-hmm. whatever they call it back then, Chalmers Award, uh, Silver got the one award. He, he got uh, he actually Silver got the award late in the year during the season. They gave it to him. Mm-hmm. They didn't wait the season to end. It was just kind of funny as well. But uh, it really, I mean, look at his numbers. It was an MVP. I always called it MVP type season. It certainly was. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it was six twenty seven slugging percentage. You know, over one OPS, but the league and total bases and RBI and you know things that home runs. Obviously, he broke a Ruth streak. Uh, you know, thirty thirty. Well, I don't know what you could ask for. The guy had just an incredible season. Sure did, and, and, and played almost every day too. He didn't didn't hurt that year, so he stayed healthy, which was, which was always a help. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the Browns that year did challenge the Yankees. Um, they were ninety three and sixty one. Like you said, they went to the series in forty four. But this was probably the best Browns team ever, and I think you might have even written at some point that in the history of baseball, they are like a top 20 to 25 team. That's how good they were. Um, and this was probably the best team that Ken Williams ever played on. This guy never had any luck throughout his entire <laughs> career, no matter what team he played on. And I guess that happens periodically to certain ball players. Did did Ken ever talk about that in your conversations with his children and doing research? Did you ever find anything where Ken Williams was disappointed or said something about the poor teams he played on? No, the Browns, you know, the Browns were up and down. He was there. Um, I never really found anything that said that, you know, Ken, Ken always just seemed to be in the moment. He didn't look back ever. You know, he, he didn't talk about the past. I don't think he worried about the past. So it just kind of whatever happened, happened, and he's moved on to the next year and never really worried about it. He did play for a winner in Spokane 1915, but ironically, he, he was uh, sold to Portland before the team clinched the pennant, so he never got a chance to celebrate. <laughs> never got a chance to celebrate the pennant. It's one pennant he won. He never got a chance to celebrate. Unfortunately for him, but uh, yeah, I don't think he's that kind of guy. I mean, obviously he wanted to win. What, you know, what competitor doesn't want to doesn't want to win? But I don't think it festered on him or anything like that. This just wasn't the kind of guy he was. 
Now, at that same time in 1922, the Browns took the Yankees all the way to the last weekend, and maybe there was a little shenanigans going on. No one will be able to prove it, but this was all during the time when the Red Sox would trade the Yankees, their better players. There was something with the Tigers at that point. Talk about that, about, you know, maybe there was a little backdoor something or other going on to, to uh, you know, help the Yankees win the pennant and keep the Browns out. Right. So the, um, the Red Sox and the Yankees, as uh, those know, the curse of Babe Ruth and all that. Maybe people forget that since the Red Sox have been so good lately. But, uh, you know, uh, back, back then, there was accusations that the Red Sox would help, we help would help uh, the Yankees out, you know, Ruth being one deal, but there were plenty of others, Carl Mays, um, uh, another guy they traded to the Red Sox, the Yankees, help out the Yankees. And in 1922, uh, the Red Sox claimed they weren't going to trade uh, their third baseman, uh, Joe Dugan, and it turned out they did, and they traded him to the Yankees, along <laughs> uh, with a couple other players. And this is like uh, late July, and people were very upset, and not just – I mean, St. Louis Browns were upset. The people of St. Louis were upset, but not just them. It was all, all across baseball. There was a talk of almost like collusion. Like mm-hmm. the, the Red Sox were helping collude uh, collude with the Yankees uh, with these with these deals. And the deals and the players the Red Sox got back were, were were marginal at best. And they tried to sell off as, oh, we got these young players who were going to be great. And they really were, you know, also ran so they never did anything. So that was the first problem. The second problem uh, was late in the year. You mentioned well, the, you know, the really the Browns did themselves, you know. They had a three-game series late in the year in St. Louis, and, and the Yankees, uh, you know, took the, took the series and that put them ahead in, in the pennant race. Mm-hmm. If the Browns win that series, the Browns are in the driver's seat. But nevertheless, there was still time left in the season. The Browns had a chance. They kind of, they kind of, you know, were probably dispirited into that series. But it, there were still a game back with two games left, and the Red Sox uh, in the two games, in the penultimate game of the season, uh, benched their uh, ace starter and put in his rookie. Who got hmm. bombed in the first inning? Got bombed in the first inning. They took him out and put the ace back into relief in the second inning. So it was, you know, a little bit of hijinks there, perhaps. Uh, you know, I don't want to say that the the Red Sox gave the Yankees a panic because basically the Browns, the Browns had their chance. They 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 win more games face to face. They they win the pennant. But I'm sure that left a sour taste in their mouth that they mm-hmm. didn't quite go where they should. So they they finish second in 1922, and they have high hopes for 1923. And, you know, Ken backed up that season pretty well. And the Browns, they were hoping to challenge the Yankees again. And as good as Williams was, however, he really wasn't the Browns' best player. That label fell on the shoulders of George Sisler, and he missed the whole year he had like a bout with sinusitis or something like that. And St. Louis fell to 74 and 78. But Ken still hit a career best 357 that season. And he had 29 home runs and 91 ribbies. In 1924, again, St. Louis went 74 and 78. And Ken, he was solid again. 324 with 18 homers and 84 ribbies. But I think this might have been when age might have finally started to creep into his game. He dealt with a bunch of different ailments. Of course, the foul ball that broke his foot had nothing to do with his age. But still, he did have some injuries I think you could associate with age. 1925, he was really strong again. 
And he was hitting 331 with 35 home runs and 105 RBIs. St. Louis was playing pretty well, and then on August the 14th, he took one to the head from a pitcher in Cleveland. I think his name was like By Spees or something like that. Right. right yep. And it knocked him unconscious. How scary was that? And how important a role did Cleveland's Chick Fuster play in possibly saving Ken's life? Yeah, I mean, it, was, it was scary. I mean, remember, these guys didn't wear helmets, right? <laughs> and uh, it was a it was a three zero pitch. It, it kind of came high and tight, and, and Ken flinched, and he flinched kind of into the ball, so clunked him right in the right in the noggin, and he was out. He was out, and he fell to the ground, was unconscious a little bit. Uh, so that's always scary, obviously. Yeah, you get hit, and you know, and they said no, no protection. You're being protected by a cap, so that's no protection at all. So uh, it took them. They, they revived him. They got him to the clubhouse, and they're uh, they're gonna get him in the shower to kind of wake him up and you know get his senses back. And, and Chick Future played for Cleveland. And years earlier, he had fractured, got his skull fractured uh, by hit by a pitch uh, in spring training. And he was always, whenever someone got hit, he was always very concerned because he knew exactly what he would have gone through mm-hmm. and wanted to kind of be there for the guy who got who got hit. So he kind of left the Cleveland clubhouse or dugout and came into the St. Louis clubhouse. And they said they're going to throw him in the shower. And they said, don't go in. If you could go in the shower, that could that could finish you off. You could, you know, the shock or whatever it was, the cold water could, whatever. Wow. You, you could be dead. You could be dead. And so Ken backed off. And later in, later in life, Ken had read about a minor league baseball player who, in fact, got hit in the head, went into the shower and died afterwards after taking the shower. Mm. So so he uh, was fortunate Chick Fuster, unfortunate to get hit, fortunate that Chick Fuster was there to perhaps, you know, save save his life, talk him out of that. And, uh, and uh, it was an unfortunate ending of the season. You mentioned it was, he was having a great season. He probably would have won another home run crown that, that year if he had uh, stayed healthy. And 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 the Browns, how good were the Browns that season? Were they well, a contender? They, they, the funny part is when when Ken was healthy, the pitching staff was, was atrocious. I mean, it was it was horrible. They were giving up like ten runs a game, tons <laughs> of double digits, lots of time. It was so bad. And then Ken got hurt. And the pitching staff like suddenly turned around, and the guys who were thinking suddenly started throwing great baseball. So they kind of finished 500, but they were kind of a good hitting team when Ken was around, and a good pitching team when Ken was not around. So they had, maybe if Ken was there, that would help them push up on the stands a little bit. I don't know, but uh, they probably wouldn't have won. But the pitching was the whole year. Maybe there would have been a contender, but the pitching was so bad early on. It was, it was. Oh, I think it's just those scores. Like, oh my gosh! And then somehow, whatever reason, these guys turned around. Um, Maybe they knew they had no hitting, so they had a pitch because uh, Ken was really the best hitter on the team. You know, Chisler was kind of a shadow of mm-hmm. himself at that at that point. Um, so it was kind of an interesting season the way that turned out for them. He did lead the league in slugging percentage that year, though, and I said he would have uh, missed a lot of games that year. He would have led the league in home runs if he'd stayed healthy. So it's kind of it's really a pity what happened to him. Yeah, you know, and and you know, you could always say what if. But when you take a look back at that one particular year, the way he was hitting the ball, you almost have to wonder if that was the season that ultimately scarred him as far as never being elected to the Hall of Fame. And we'll get into that in a little bit. So, of course, he misses the rest of the season and really... That was the last big season he had. He never hit as many as 20 home runs in a season again. So how much did the concussion 
play a role in that as far as, um, mm. you know, the kind of years he had following that? And maybe how much did his real age play a role in the fact that he didn't hit as many as 20 home runs again? Sure. Well, um, first of the concussion, that definitely, you know, he was, he was out for a while. I mean, he was hospitalized and you know, he had buzzing in his head months later still. So it definitely affected him. I think early on, you know, you can hit like that. It's going to, you know, you need to get your confidence back. And it, it, took, it probably took him a couple months to do that. Uh, and in 1926, um, Dan Holly was now the manager of the, of the Browns. And he would, he would start uh, platooning. Maybe still they were still there. I take it back. But they would start platooning Ken. And they wouldn't really start him you know, at the bench. And he just couldn't get into a groove. The funny part is once they started getting back in the lineup, he hit. And the concussion was a thing of the past. Mm-hmm. And I know the numbers in front of me. And they're in the book. So please, if you read the book, I appreciate it. Uh, they, their numbers are in the book of how, how well he did once he got in the lineup. His overall numbers, you know, he only had 280 that year, which is the worst batting average ever. Because he kind of got off to that slow start. Mm-hmm. But he did 17, 17, 17 dingers in 108 games, which isn't bad. And he was 36 years old at the time. So, um, so I think the concussion early on affected him. But that was it. And then after that, it was nothing that it was no longer... Uh, an issue. Uh, I think people have written that the concussion cost him his career and he never was the same hitter. I think that, that's just not true. Mm-hmm. Look at the, look at, if you look at his numbers from 26 to 29, when he started, he, he had great starting. I mean, he, he was in the starting lineup, he hit, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, the age thing is, is interesting. You, you brought that up because I actually called up a statistic today uh, for, this, for this purpose. Uh, so uh, he hit 17 home runs in 26 and 17 home runs in 27. He was 37 years old. He turned 37 years old in mm-hmm. 1927. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I looked this up today on Baseball Reference. It's always a great website. So he, his last year was 1929. So from the start of professional baseball until 1929, only 11 times in history did a player at 35 years old or older hit 17 home runs in a season. He did it three times. So those 11. Wow. And then Cy Williams did it four times. He played for Philadelphia, and Philadelphia had a right field fence that was like 300 feet in right center yeah, field. It was like so the Baker really... Bowl or something. Baker Bowl, right. Yeah. It was a band box. It was, it was a band box. So he was playing in the... So four times with Cy Williams, he played in the band box. Uh, so at least seven. And another time, Sam Thompson also played in that band box. So take him out, right? If he wanted to do that, there's six. He didn't. So Ken had half those. So it was not common for players of his age to want to be playing, period, really. And two to be productive at that age. It just wasn't. It just you know it wasn't the way it was back then. These guys would get to be thirty four years old and they'd be cast off to the minors and finish their careers out there. They just didn't stay in shape or whatever. But Ken stayed in shape, obviously, and he could hit uh, in, into you know you know then twenty nine at three forty five. He was thirty nine years thirty nine years old, but he was a part time player. And that's what happened. He get older. Uh, you know he he got he moved to a different team. The park changed and you know, power staffs a little bit. Um, and he was kind. of, like I said, kind of came a part-time player. So I think it was a combination of he just wasn't a, they weren't making him a full-time player. Again, look at his stats when he started; they were excellent. When he was pinch hitting, they were not. Um, and you know, I think age did catch up with him, but you know, he was he slugged five forty his, his last year in the major league. So wow. he's still you know limited time, but still still slugged five forty. So he's he still he can still poke him out there. Well, after the twenty seven season, St. Louis sent Ken Williams to the Red Sox. And they were now owned by Bob Quinn, who played such a role in bringing Ken to the Browns in the first place. And in Ken's first year with Boston, he hit a more than respectable 303. I mean, you just said before, his lowest batting average for a season was 280. You know, 
go go figure. But you know, it, it, that's that's really bad. Two eighty. I feel bad for the guy. But uh, <laughs> you know, he hits three oh three. He only hit eight home runs, but he knocked in sixty seven. Certainly far off the numbers he was used to putting up. Then in nineteen twenty eight. It, that's really where it all came to an end. And the end started, ironically, on a play that involved Wally Gerber, his teammate in St. Louis, who was later traded to Boston. What happened? Yeah, this happened more than one occasion when they played for St. Louis, but uh, on a fly ball, you know, one of those fly balls, a shallow left or center, whatever it was, and Ken's coming in, Wally plays short, that he's going back, and Someone didn't call call for it properly, I guess, and uh, <laughs> they they bang into each other and, and get knocked silly to the ground, and and that happened to Ken a few times. And uh, you know, injuries and you get older, they're harder to come back from too. You know, he got hurt in t- 1928, and that kind of his production dipped off a little bit. And then 29, he got you know, he ran the Wally, and uh, that didn't help his cause. And at the end of the career, he, he knocked the ball off his foot, and that pretty much finished it off. But mm-hmm. you know, when you're, when you're 39, you're 29 and 39, you know, it's a big difference. Uh, in baseball years and coming back from injuries. And uh, you, get, you get hurt a lot early in his career and they able to come back relatively well. Late in your career, it's not as easy to come back from Sure. And, and so one, 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 one too many running into Wally Gerber to help finish him off. You know, earlier in the podcast, you had said that Ken Williams was the kind of guy who could fall out of bed and hit. And oh, yeah. even after all of this, he still played somewhat sparingly and he still hit. But yeah. but he didn't have the ability really to play every day anymore, and I found this really interesting, funny, enlightening. The National League at this point had come up with the idea to use a pinch hitter every time the pitcher was to bat, really a designated hitter. The American League wanted nothing to do with it. They are uh, designated hitter for the pitcher. Are you crazy? <laughs> Had the rule been adopted, Williams might have actually played a little bit longer. Funny how things worked out, though, isn't it? Ultimately, yeah. the National League says a designated hitter, no way. And <laughs> the American League adopts the rule. How funny is that? Yeah, it's. it's- it was pretty funny when I read that. I had no idea that actually happened. Uh, so I was really funny when I read it. And that's so bad for Ken because he definitely could have stuck around a couple more years because he played in the minors a couple more years. I mean, Boston had him. Boston had him playing in center field at 39 years old, which is crazy. Right. But uh, again, yeah. they only thought he was 34, 35. But true, regardless, true. I mean, he had played really right field or left field for most of his well, career, and they're putting him out in center field. And right. he he wasn't exactly the worst thing out there, not on that team. True, true. It was not a very good team. I felt bad for him. He got sent to Boston, to be perfectly honest. He, you know, the Yankees wanted him at some point, and that – Imagine if he was in the, you know, that murderer's row gang and what he would have done that that team and that short portion right field in New York, in New York too. Now uh, they always seem after him and going to Boston, career wise, it's probably the, you know, the worst thing that could happen to him. I mean, he was fine with it. He knew Bob Quinn. He was happy to play in Boston, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, that was not a good team. That was a very if he could go to you know, St. Louis was a bad team. Boston was worse. That franchise <laughs> was even worse. Dave it was hard to believe. That was a not a good not a good team. 
But he was he he did finally make it to the Yankees, um, but he never made it out of spring training again because of injuries. It sure would have been interesting, though, don't you think, had he played for the Yankees during the height of his career? Who knows? Ken Williams might actually have made it to the Hall of Fame if he had played for the Yankees, don't you think? Yeah, there were rumors in the mid twenties, so he like I said, he could have been part of the you know twenty six, twenty seven Yankees, who were obviously uh, you know some pretty good teams there. I don't know where it would have fit in, uh, but he would have hit a lot of home runs at Yankee Stadium or the Polo Grounds or actually Yankee Stadium by that point, uh, um, because that that stadium was built for him just as much as St. Louis as it was. Uh, the you know left-handed hitted uh, power power guys do well, so and playing for a winner would have helped his cause um, as well. Sure. Yeah, playing with the Yankees, playing with the Yankees, obviously, anyone plays with the Yankees seems to get a boost, regardless. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, this guy, he really loved baseball, and even after his days in the majors were over, he couldn't shake that love for the game, and he went back to playing the PCL, and he put up some pretty, pretty good numbers for the Portland Beavers in 1930. But I think finally age caught up with him yeah. midway through his 31 season, the 1931 season, that is, and he finally called it quits. What was life without baseball like for Ken after his playing days were over? Yeah, so you mentioned Ken played for Portland. He, he wanted to play again. He had a few offers in the minors, but wanted to stay close to home with his wife uh, and his children, or, you know, right near where he's from. So uh, once that was done, he was he was near home. He just stayed. He was a home guy. He was a hometown guy. At, at Grants Pass is where he wanted to live, and that's where he went back to. And uh, he just became a part of the community. You know, he would help out the high school. Uh, you know, uh, help him with baseball if they needed help with that. And he'd referee boxing matches in town. Mm. Um, he eventually became a police officer, uh, which uh, you know wasn't like you know <laughs> again small town. Think more Barney Fife than. Uh, <laughs> anything else, I guess. <laughs> but you know, it wasn't you know, yeah, it wasn't anything anything too too crazy going on in Grants Pass. But it was a way to make a living. Especially you know, uh, in the depression, they, he had a problem getting a job. They were like everyone else. He uh, you know, was lacking money. You know, he had to dip into his baseball money you know, during that time. He created something called Ken's Crunchers, which were a, uh, a potato chip snack kind of thing to make money off of that uh, before getting into the police. And he uh, eventually owned a bar, a billiard hall. Uh, with 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 the guy I mentioned early on, way early, Bud Pernal, uh, who was, uh, came back to Grants Pass and they owned the bar together, uh, and that's pretty much what he did for the rest of his life until the end. He had mm-hmm. health problems and mm-hmm. had to had to stop had to stop doing it. But he, he'd sit in there and tell stories. You know, if anyone ever asked, never really reflected on his past. And even his son said that then he never really talked baseball uh, or about his playing days. He and someone mm-hmm. asked him, he'd be happy to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't the kind of guy. He wasn't the kind of guy who would, who would reflect on the past. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, when we opened today's edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes, I mentioned how you started your book by talking about the fact that there was a banquet being held in St. Louis to honor past stars of St. Louis baseball. And Ken Williams was afraid that no one would know who he was, that he was forgotten. Later on, you wrote that during his phenomenal 1922 season, a photographer was tasked with grabbing a photo of him, and he took a picture of Bill Jacobson instead, and he submitted that photo saying that was Ken Williams. I mean, talk about playing in obscurity. Ken wasn't that far <laughs> yeah. off, was he? 
<laughs> no, he wasn't. Uh, I think they finally learned who he was, but that was that was uh, you know ironic. I think some uh, paper in St. Louis mentioned this is Babe Ruth never would know who he is. <laughs> it showed the kind of lack. It showed the kind of the lack of respect that that, that St. Louis and Ken was, was was getting at the time. He would get the respect eventually, uh, but. Uh, it was it was kind of a funny moment that they took a picture of Baby Doll Jacobson instead of, instead of Ken not knowing. And Baby Doll Jacobson was a right-handed hitter, and Ken is a lefty. It's really even funny. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. Hey, when you were writing the book, Ken Williams, A Slugger in Ruth's Shadow, what surprised you most? What did you find out that really made you shake your head? What's well, a good question. I don't know. It's, the, I mentioned earlier the thing about 1911 when he played up in, in Sacramento. I'd never heard that before, and that that, that was a great find. I really loved it. Um, you know, just reading about the minors, you know, and the kind of guy he was was, was interesting. Um, you know, I, I read a lot of things about you know how he was, you know, aloof and no one liked him, and I found that not to be true. I found he did have friends in the game, and you know, he was made captain of one of their barnstorming teams. And, you know, man, imagine that. Why would they have someone who didn't they didn't like manage their barnstorming team? I read, how, I read how George Sister didn't like him, and that I found that not to be true. Maybe at some point it was. Uh, they kind of had a little rift, but but the Sister vowed he would not trade. Uh, Ken was like he was the one guy he would not trade. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it was. I found a lot of these things that you that you read as I don't say gospel, but you read that through the years. And obviously, people out there probably haven't read about Ken Wayne like I have, and, and found information out. But the thing to see when you do the actual research, you find out that not they're not always true. You know, the mm-hmm. stories are carried on because. Because one person said it, it gets carried on as fact. And it's one of the things with this not fact. I think he, I don't think he was a gregarious personality that one loved, but he was a guy who had friends in baseball and then kept in touch with guys and, and had a good, you know, had a good time and, and uh, you know, got along with Sister for the most part and um, was a crab. And, you know, he could be all these. <laughs> that's, 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 that's okay. But he was also a great hitter. And I found out really what a great hitter he was and how respected he was. You know, really looking into the numbers of how, you know, going back and, and, not only just looking at the stats and going online and seeing where he ranks in history, but just, there were guys in the twenties who did who did statistical analysis back then and found out he was one of the best hitters in the game. He mentioned these great names that we talk about all the time, and uh, I remember Amos Rusi uh, quote Amos Rusi in the Hall of Fame, pitching eighteen hundreds. You know, say, oh, no surprise, Killings is one of the hardest hitters, and it's you know it mm-hmm. shows you with the respect he had as a hitter back then when a guy like Amos Rusi was in the Hall of Fame. You know, back in 1920, he was saying, yeah, of course, he's one of the hardest hitters we expect him to be. It just shows what kind of hitter he really was. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one of the reasons I do this podcast is to talk about guys whom time has forgotten for whatever reason. And on the previous episode, we talked about a guy by the name of Hal Trotsky, who was sure. a phenomenal first baseman for the Cleveland Indians. And it, it just blows my mind that very few Indian fans can even remember Hal Trotsky. But then when I look at the career of Ken Williams, you know, I get it. The Browns are no longer around. But when right. you look at the entire body of work, you got to scratch your head and say, how do people not know or remember Ken Williams? And is it? an injustice in your mind that this guy is not in Cooperstown? Ooh, injustice is a bit of a strong word. It's a tough word. Um, you know, I, I do go in the pros and cons of the book of whether he should be in or not. And really, if you look at the stats and take, you know, if you take away the, what I will call the steroid era, you know, when that kind of kicks right. in, and, and look where he ranks in history, it, 
you'd be surprised how high he is. People out there listening, hopefully, uh, his slugging percentage, his batting average, his on base percentage, he's ranked very high. And the guys ahead in front of him are 900% in the Hall of Fame. So, and on that basis, yeah, maybe he should be in the Hall of Fame. But at the same point, I get why he's not. His numbers aren't really eye popping. Uh, you know, the, the, we're in the year of the home run, so. 196 home runs isn't exactly going to stand sure, out. You got, middle, sure. you got middle infielders who are hitting 220 doing that in you know, five years. You know? But a 319 um, career batting average, his yeah. slugging percentage, his OPS, all these years where he hit more home runs than he struck out, he didn't strike out a lot. And again, I'm not the person to induct a guy into the Hall of Fame. Um, I'm just asking the question, what is the sentiment out there Um you know, do the voters today even know enough about Ken Williams? Right. Well, I, I would say that question, no, and they should read the book. Uh, but, uh, you know, in 1970-ish, around there, there was some article in the Sporting News where people were, they were, they were stumping for Ken, saying, hey, why is this guy not in the Hall of Fame? So even as recently as, with that, you know, 40, whatever years ago, people, there were people who were kind of like, What's going on? Why people he is kind of forgotten? Why is he, why is he not in all fame? And I think he is forgotten because you mentioned the Browns don't exist anymore, right? So that's uh, the, there's no history. People mm-hmm. aren't talking about the Browns. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did not play for a winning team, obviously. And he, and and once his career ended, offenses kind of offense started picking up. He did an era where the offense was slowly starting to pick up and had great numbers, but then the numbers started blowing up in the thirties and the forties, you know, to, to today, where his numbers are, are paling in comparison because. You know, that's just the way it is. You can play long enough or whatever you, you want to say. But I think, you know, I, I try to lay the case on the book both ways, why he should be in, maybe why he isn't. And I can see it both ways. I would love him to be in. I think he is, you know, one of the best players I've seen in the franchise history of the Browns. He's even considering the Orioles. He's, he's up there as well. Um, the numbers speak for themselves. Um, do I think he'll ever be in? It's probably doubtful at this point. You know, we're in mm-hmm. 2019, mm-hmm. 2019 um, unless someone's going to, Read my book and say yes, he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. He should get on the veterans ballot. He's been on a couple times. He's been on a couple times and hasn't got much traction. Um, I don't know why. Um, love to see it. I think he's he was an absolutely great hitter, um, but hopefully he will not be forgotten. Now that's the way I kind of put in the book. You know, when I did this book, I talked. I was able to talk to his sons, which was uh, was just fantastic. Um, and and just hearing there, uh, I called his son and told him the book is published because he had heard us before people talk about his dad and he's been in the hall of fame and it doesn't happen blah 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 and when i finally uh told him hey the book is published i'm sending one to you he was i mean he was so ecstatic and happy for it. that you know maybe can't look in the hall of fame but um i'm happy that at least his family knows people haven't forgot about him and uh and his career shouldn't be forgotten because he was he was a great player that's awesome hey where can people get a hold of your book ken williams a slugger and roots shadow yeah, I mean, it's available. It's uh, posted by McFarland Books. You can go on their website, obviously, uh, Amazon, whatever else you shop, Barnes & Noble, whatever uh, online, those places who shop online, uh, they're there. Um, if you can't find it, I'm on Twitter. You can Twitter, you know, send me a tweet, Dave underscore Heller, and I'll help you find one for sure. Uh, uh, definitely uh, appreciate anyone who wants to buy one. Awesome. Now, you've written a couple other books as well, one about the 1944 St. Louis Browns and another very interesting about what it was like to face Ted Williams. Are you working on anything new now? 
Uh, I'm always kind of messing around, seeing what I can find out. I try not to say too much because I feel like I'm going to jinx myself if I, if I give any clue away. So, you never know what's going to be in the future. But hey, if anyone's got any good ideas, throw my way. I'm always interested. In, I love old time baseball. You know, people, you know, we couldn't watch these guys and they know, know, know so little. So any research you can find on these guys, that's why I think, I think it's just fascinating to find out about these guys that we know so little about. Sure. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. And hey, I hope you would consider coming back again. Oh, of course. Hey, it was a great time. I really appreciate you having me. And I said, I always talk about Ken anytime. So thank you so much for having me on. Awesome. Thank you. I thought it was pretty cool that baseball fans in St. Louis gave Ken such a warm reception when he returned for that banquet. After all, He was one of the greatest to ever play in St. Louis, and had the team had any pitching, perhaps they could have made more noise in St. Louis, and maybe, just maybe, there could still be two baseball teams in St. Louis. With the Browns, Williams hit 326 with 185 home runs and 811 RBI. He also stole 144 bases. Overall for his career, he hit 319 with 196 home runs, 916 RBI, and 154 stolen bases. His career OPS, 924. But not having made it as a full-time player until he was 30 years old certainly affected his ability to rack up even more numbers. Still, Ken Williams had quite the impressive career. Thanks again to today's guest, Dave Heller, author of Ken Williams, A Slugger in Ruth's Shadow. And thanks to you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.